literal ton of people waiting. So uh, we are very, very excited to talk to you today. I'm just going to give a uh, brief overview of what we're going to talk about, give you a brief introduction, and then uh, we're going to go through some selected topics that we have outlined previously that we think are going to be interesting to hear about. If anybody watching has any listener questions, please feel free to drop those in the chat and producer Gus will send them forward to us. Uh, Kevin, I'm going to give your intro and then uh, I would like to ask you to talk a little bit more about yourself, maybe how you got into what you uh, are doing now, and then we'll go into our topics. Uh, so Kevin, you're based in Boulder, Colorado. It's a uh, lovely place to be, especially it's like 70 degrees outside right now and it's gonna be- Yeah, it could be better right now. Yeah, exactly. It's a, it's a great time to be uh, outside responsibly or indoors working on your strength training with all the sun coming through the windows. Uh, you're a strength coach with a focus on endurance athletes. You train a handful of elite high-profile runners and triathletes in Boulder, as well as remote athletes. Uh, recent athletes that you've worked with have been, uh, you know, people from Jake Riley, who placed second at the U.S. Olympic Marathon Trials, uh, Flora Duffy, who won her fifth Xterra World Championship, uh, and won uh, her debut at the 70.3 Ironman South Africa, Sam Long, who's won Ironman Chattanooga, uh, the uh, Ironman Chattanooga 7.3 and 140.6, Ironman Victoria 70.3, Dee Dee Gracebauer, who set the Ultraman world record at Ultraman Florida, Chris Lieferman, who won Ironman Boulder and top 10 at Kona in his world championship debut, and Matt Hansen, who won Ironman Boulder at 140.6, Ironman Traverse City and Ironman Kempech at 70.3. That's a huge list of incredible athletes, and the list goes on because I, I know from uh, interacting with you over social media, all the people that you're posting about that you're, you know, uh, working with in person as well as remote. So that's just a, uh, you know, brief overview of the, the very top. Uh, today, we're going to talk about why runners should build full body strength, how to build strength at home, and what runners should do to complement their strength building programs involving diet and sleep routines. So Kevin, uh, huge introduction. Thanks again so much for coming on. Can you tell everybody listening just a little bit more about yourself. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, I probably come from a little different background being on the strength side. I grew up playing team sports, power-based sports. Um, so for me, it was football, baseball, basketball, wrestling. I went into club rugby at college. And then, you know, once you finish all that, those opportunities don't really carry on. Um, so I thought maybe I wanted to go into bodybuilding. Didn't really see that as being a good long-term proposition. I decided to start running one day. Two miles turned into four, turned into a half marathon. Next thing you know, it's Ironmans, ultras, all that kind of stuff. So once I got into that, I started viewing everything I did on the training side through the lens of an endurance athlete. And it was kind of like, what kind of things can I do to help myself? And then in turn, what can I do to help out other athletes? So a little bit, a little bit of a different route to get here. Um, and it obviously means I tend to think more on the strength side. But, you know, hopefully that kind of mix over the last 15 years, um, as well as just feedback from coaches and people I work with, uh, we've been able to hone some of the process here. And as we can see, we're starting to get some pretty good results. Yeah, I before we even get into, you know, maybe defining what is strength, how do people strength train, how do runners strength train or endurance athletes strength train, um, the focus on actually adding in strength to an endurance athlete's wheelhouse and repertoire and training regimen, I feel like has taken a 
kind of dramatic shift over the past couple of years. It used to be, um, you know, people refer to the 90s of US distance running as kind of like the dark times where people really weren't just competitive globally. Uh, and then you have that maybe second running boom in the 90s into the 2000s as everybody start running, uh, you know, their local races, local marathons. Uh, but it feels like, especially on the elite side, but even on the recreational side, that there's been this huge shift of priorities in running and strength training has kind of taken, uh, you know, one of the, the top places there. Can you talk maybe about the evolution uh, in your eyes of how strength training has become more important for regular distance runners all the way up to the elite athletes that you work with? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I certainly kind of saw this coming from a strength background. Uh, it was never something I was going to drop once I got into endurance sports. Um, there's a little meathead that lives inside me and I've got to go pump iron periodically. So it's just part of my happiness. Um, but yeah, I mean, part of what prompted my move out to Boulder four years ago was just seeing that we were kind of on the front side of this process, um, properly applying strength, periodizing programming, you know, just getting beyond doing some basic band exercises. And Boulder obviously is the Mecca, so it made sense to come on out here and start working on that. Um, you know, the big thing is we talk about injury prevention and then after that comes sport performance. So obviously we always want to perform better. Um, and the one thing I tell people is you will not get better if you're injured and you're losing training time. So the first step in the hierarchy is we need to make sure we've got some degree of balance. And, you know, I don't mean walking a tightrope. I mean, left side, right side, front, back, those kinds of things. Uh, once we're pretty comfortable, we've got a nice solid base, you know, then we can go into that performance side where we're actually preparing them for maybe it's a specific event. Um, you know, for Jake, we went ahead and did some specific things for Atlanta, just knowing it was going to be hilly. So we can start to shape some of that with the strength process. But if we don't have healthy athletes, it doesn't matter how strong we make them. Um, all we do is give them more ability to get hurt. So, yeah, I think we're going to see um, even more of an evolution. I think you're going to see more people coming into the process. Um, obviously, with things like social media and easy access on the web, uh, we're able to learn a lot faster now. Um, if you go back you know, 20 years, if you didn't go to a seminar or you didn't go through research journals, you really weren't coming up with the info. Um, now, fortunately, we can go on YouTube and uh, as long as you're following the right people, you can get a lot of good information. So, yeah, I just expect to see this to continue. Um, and it doesn't matter if you're an age grouper or professionally elite. You know, we all need to stay injury free. We need to stay healthy. And then, yeah, if we've got that under our belt. Let's go ahead and work on the performance side. Awesome. Uh, and your uh, your your own business is KP Performance, as we can see. Uh, I, I, I like your logo. It's a it, it's a great logo, but um, we'll we'll get all into that. And uh, I want to remind people watching that if they have any questions, please feel free to drop them in the chat and we'll get to that. Um, our first topic is all about strength and why strength is important. Can you um, maybe define what you consider as strength? Uh, and then what can be accomplished through strength training that cannot be accomplished through just regular pure running? Yeah, so I'll kind of start with, you know, for me, when I use the term strength, um, you know, that I handle the strength side of the equation, that's not just, you know, getting stronger. Um, for me, that's going to include mobility. It's going to include balancing things out. It's going to include core, um, pretty much the full gamut of things that we need to stay healthy. So strength is going to be one element in that whole package of things. Um, and, you know, if you look, you know, technically people have been able to run quite well without having a ton of strength training. If you go back and just historically look at people, um, I'm pretty sure the Africans don't have, you know, a very set, 
gym program. Um, and there are a whole host of reasons why they do so well, but you know, they'll tend to do hill running and you can definitely develop some strength there. Um, but you're still going to be limited by load. So you can't be as specific. You're going to be stuck with body weight the greater the hill you're running. And, you know, that and plyometrics are about the only two ways outside of using, you know, more traditional strength elements that you're going to improve that. But there's going to be a ceiling there. And just yeah. to kind of reiterate what I said earlier. Yeah, it's all of it. The injury prevention side. And I do tend to get a little redundant sometimes because I want certain things to stick in people's heads. So um, just view it as, you know, first we're trying to keep the body healthy and then we're going to worry about the performance side. Right. And I I, I th- I think any time that, uh, you know, somebody that has come from the pure endurance side of running that, you know, has only run, and I'm speaking from personal experience here myself, um, you know, we used to lift a little bit of weights in high school track. And then in college, we would try and get in the gym and, and do some stuff. But it seems like the evolution of people at least being aware of the fact that they should be incorporating strength um, is be- becoming more and more normal, but there still is maybe the hesitancy from an endurance athlete side and approach of mm-hmm. exactly what they should incorporate, how they should incorporate it, uh, and, and why they should. So the next kind of question that I'd have here is how much how much strength is enough and how long does it take to build strength. And you mentioned strength is this umbrella that, you know, talks about plyometrics, weightlifting, mobility, because it all ties together. But how much is enough for somebody um, that has maybe never incorporated it? And then how much is enough for somebody at the very elite level that is running 120 plus miles a week with hard long runs and hard workouts as well? Yeah, well, and you know, that that part of the equation, you could probably get a different answer depending on who you talk to as far as how much strength is enough strength. Uh, you know, coming from a strength background, I, I don't really see a reason to limit strength development. You know, I don't say, okay, we're at some pounds, that's where we need to hold it, because if that athlete is able to increase their strength a little bit more without taking away from any of their run training, um, to me, it's just going to add to that and help them down the road. So I don't put a cap on strength. Um, now, if we're talking about, you know, how often should somebody be doing it, then you get into the whole periodization concept where what part of the season are they in, competitive season, off season, preseason. So what we typically do is have our athletes do two days of strength. And during the off season, they're going to do, you know, three sets or more. And then in season, we're going to cut things down to about two sets. Um, and the amount of strength somebody can do in season is going to be relative to how much they did out of season. So one of my big things this year was, you know, getting to just thinking triathletes kind of wrapping it up in October, um, really focusing on people not waiting until the middle of February or March to then begin their strength training program uh, because you're limited in your development and you're limited on what you can do once you go into the competitive season. So if we have a little longer window going into it, we're going to be able to do a little bit more because once you back off of the strength, and this was kind of one of my pet peeves, we'll say, uh, I'd see people put in, you know, two, three months of work get into the competitive season and out of a concern for their swim, bike, run, run training, they back off of their strength. Well, for the most part, we're going to get to our championship races later in the season. And at that point, they've already lost the vast majority of their strength gains. So finding ways to keep stuff in, but the ultimate goal is we cannot take away from the run training or swim, bike, run training, and obviously can't take away from race performances. 
So there are a lot of ins and outs, and that's why I kind of seem a little bit vague with some of my answers. Um, and it's just because I don't want somebody to take some very specific piece of information and go out and do it because there are a whole lot of factors that go into this um, as far as where the athlete is, what they need. Right. And that sounds like, um, you know, we've had a lot of experts in different fields uh, on the webinars over the past couple of weeks. And that seems the common theme of, you know, everybody that we're talking to that knows a bunch of stuff is that, you know, you don't have just one answer and it's only that way. And the, 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 the reason you bring up that you should have multiple considerations depending on who you are, I think is um, great. I would maybe ask uh, th this question next of, strength training, is it more beneficial, let's just say the person we're talking about in this situation is somebody that does three sets of 10 push-ups twice a week, and they maybe do some lunges once a week, and that's the full extent of their concept of strength training. Is adding in more specific plyometrics, uh, heavier lifting, uh, general mob mobility, is that type of training going to be more beneficial for them to just make sure they don't get, uh, or to the best of their ability, not get injured during training? Or is it specifically for improving performance on race day? For this type of person, what would maybe be the the, the bigger focus for them? Well, as far as what you described, I mean, that would definitely be just the, the base kind of injury prevention overall strength component versus the actual performance enhancement, because you do need to start moving towards, you know, things that are going to have some degree of relationship to the event that person's going to be in. Um, and if I'm taking somebody that races 5Ks, that's going to be different than somebody who's a marathoner, and that's going to be different than an ultra marathoner. Could you tell so me? I think getting a good broad base, um, just all the way around, I tend to think of it as structural integrity. Um, awesome. We really get injured for one basic reason, and that's when load exceeds tolerance. So that can either happen by I pick up something really, really heavy and that's too much and boom, I get hurt. Or it can be something small that's done over a long window of time and then my injury line comes down and all of a sudden that small stress causes an injury. So what we're trying to do is make sure we stay ahead of that curve where our tissue is always prepared to handle, whether it's the training, the racing, whatever it may be, um, so that we don't cross over that line of injury. You mentioned that, uh, you know, a, a 5K specialist versus somebody training for the marathon versus ultra marathon, or maybe even throw in, uh, you know, sprint triathlon versus Ironman, they'll have differences. Could you maybe give uh, one or two differences that you would um, generally incorporate in a, a strength training program for a 5K athlete versus ultra marathon or, you know, sprint triathlon all the way versus Ironman athlete? Yeah, so probably the biggest way to think about it is the shorter the event, the more you're going to be relying on some power elements or variations of power elements. So um, probably the clearest example would be taking somebody like Didi doing an Ultraman and then taking somebody like Flora who's racing ITU, draft legal. Those are very, very different ways of going about a race. Um, so each are going to have the same elements in there. So you're going to have power, you're going to have agility, you're going to have your basic strength and obviously your mobility core and all that kind of stuff. But the athlete who's going to race on a shorter track, then I'm going to shift and give them a little bit more on that power side of the equation. Whereas the athlete who's going to do something like Ultraman, we're going to keep power in there, but a lot of it's going to be on kind of what we call muscle endurance long. So that ability to produce contractions over longer windows of time. And I look at it the same way, you know, 5K person, uh, you're more likely to need a kick going into the end of that race or at some point, or you may need to match surges and then be able to hang on. So we're going to go ahead and train them that way where we give them some quick pops and then we settle in. Uh, whereas your marathoner, you know, for the most part, and 
obviously, uh, you know, Jake, it came down at the end there and there was a big sprint finish. Uh, so, you know, we did throw a little bit of that in there for them. So that's the basic thing. Uh, everybody has the same elements included. It's just how much weight do we put in towards the power and that's going to go for shorter endurance. And then how much do we do that for a longer endurance? And when you say uh, power, do you mean things like plyometrics or heavier lifting or certain type of mobility? Maybe what's one example of for that it's shorter? Definitely be that combination of the plyometrics and heavier lifting. So awesome. you know everything kind of stacks on itself. So first we think good base strength. Mm -hmm. From base strength, then we kind of go to maximum strength. Um, and this may make more sense if we go in the beginning. You're going to do three sets of ten to twelve, and that's going to mm -hmm. be your base strength. Then from there, you're going to bring the repetitions down, maybe four to six, and you're starting to load heavier. Mm. Once you get through those windows, then you're going to go ahead and put the plyometrics on top of that. Um, whereas if you went, say, plyometrics right out of the gate and you didn't have the other lifting in, you'll see a quick spike in performance, but then you're going to level out. Mm. So I really encourage people to think of this in the same way they do their run training or their swim bike run training. Um, we don't go out and apply just one stress or one type of run. We're going to go through shorter, faster, some mid-range, and then long. So we need to look at our strength training pretty much in the same way. Awesome. Yeah, I think it's super interesting because uh, when people, again, coming from uh, you know an endurance side, they understand the concept of, okay, I have my you know base mileage that I might be doing, and then I'm going to add in some of my thresholds and some strides, and then I'm going to work on specific intervals or fartlicks or hills or stuff. So that concept already makes sense to people. Just hearing it put into practice for, from a strength training uh, should help that message kind of click in people's uh, heads, I think. Um, we have a couple of listener questions that have already uh, trickled in, so I want to get your take sure. on some of these. Uh, this first question comes from Yolp. He says, as I am a triathlete, do these functional strength exercises differ for swimming or biking? Uh, yeah, I mean, there are going to be some differences in there. And we tend to think in terms of patterns versus muscles. So obviously, if you look at your position in the water and what you're doing there versus being on the bike, um, there are going to be some differences. You might look at a bigger difference, say, between your bike and your run, because now we have two entirely different types of stress going on. Um, so on a bike, there's no eccentric phase. Um, basically, eccentric is when the muscle is contracting but getting longer. So on a bike, it's just all concentric. So I may do some things to help facilitate that side of the equation if somebody's a pure cyclist or mixing in for traveling. Um, whereas with running, we are going to have that eccentric. We're going to get some of that elastic return. So plyometrics might be a little bit more important for somebody who's going to have a run element in there, whereas maybe not quite as important for somebody that's, say, swimming or just as a pure cyclist. So, yeah, there are going to be some differences in there. Um, and again, it's just the whole package and you shade one way or the other based on the specific sport. Awesome. Uh, next question here is from Mark Robert. He says, I also come from a strength background. I'm looking to improve running performance without losing muscle mass. So maybe this uh, sort of question is directed at for somebody that has come from a strength background and they've started running more. How might they go about things differently? Or is it the same for trying not to lose muscle mass while improving their actual running performance? I'd probably start with kind of wanting to have an idea of where their muscle mass is. Um, so we don't need a lot of muscle mass to be an endurance athlete. Um, as a matter of fact, it's going to be detrimental. So no two ways about it. If you are carrying more weight, whether that's body fat or muscle weight, it's going to be harder. You're going to have to produce more effort to get to the same speeds. Um, so 
you know, I, for me personally, because I just don't want to give up a whole lot of my strength training, I fully acknowledge the fact that, you know, I could potentially be a little bit faster as an endurance athlete if I went ahead and stripped down maybe another 15 or so pounds. Um, in my particular world, my quality of life and what I enjoy doing, that's not a trade-off that I'm willing to have. So it really comes down to the primary goal. And if your primary goal is to become the best endurance athlete you can be, then bringing your weight down to a normal weight, not worrying about holding a bunch of muscle mass is where you'd want to go. And you just simply kind of shift some of your strength training down, you know, that four, six or eight repetition range. Um, so hypertrophy is going to be more of that 10, 12 or higher. Whereas we say a little bit lower, you're not going to have as much muscle size, but you're still going to maintain that strength. And I'd say anybody that has a strength background um, and your goal is to be the best endurance athlete, that's your route to go. Just go ahead and bring those reps down and keep it below the hypertrophy window yet you're still going to keep all that strength that you had. And then it'll just naturally come off a little bit as far as some of the mass um, as you get into your volume with your training. Awesome. Yeah, no, great, great answer. Uh, I have one last question for this section. Uh, this is from Sloan Alexander, and they say, trying to get really strong in my core, is there a routine or specific workouts I should do, certain things to complement my goal of running a sub three-hour marathon how many days per week? So I guess this could be broken into uh, maybe three specific uh, things to target. So uh, is there a specific routine or workouts for what you define as core and then uh, complementing the goal of getting faster? How does that work? And then how many days per week? And I believe you've said two two to three is, is the general recommendation, um, but I, I'd love to get your input on this question. Yeah. So when I look at, you know, a programming, again, taking the whole ball of wax, my two to three, those are the pure strength days, I call it. Um, but for me, it's never a pure strength day. So the way I program is we're going to have four elements. We're going to have mobility and all of those things. But the big time strength elements are there twice a week. I'm still going to ask people to do one or maybe two other days of just a core workout and then give them one or two other days just focusing on mobility. Um, so in my opinion, you know, if we're training, you know, five to seven days a week, then we need to touch on the body five to seven times a week. And again, it doesn't mean it's you're doing deadlifts five to seven times. It just means that you're going to make sure that you're addressing soft tissue and core and some of those things. Um, as far as a specific routine, you know, this is definitely one of those. There are a whole lot of different ways to go about it. So what I do is just kind of think, um, you know, positions or, you know, for the core, we're going to talk about anti. So anti-extension, and that would be your things like planks. Um, lateral flexion, side planks, going into a bridge, and then covering the shoulders. So I tend to look at it as about five areas. So you're going to have the front side, and we tend to think of that as abdominals. We're going to go to the back side. So posterior chain, glutes, things like that. Lateral, which is going to be stuff like lateral hip work, as well as your side planks. Um, and then going into some kind of scapular work to make sure that everything around the shoulder girl is nice and uh, happy. And then around the hips, kind of getting into the inner thigh. So we tap into that with every single workout we do, we're going to hit each of those areas. So if you're really trying to get a big jump start on the core, then you may add volume to it. So maybe you do a plank, then you get on a ball and do a rollout or some other things. Um, but as far as something really specific, that's the, you know, the be all end all comes back to the individual again. Um, whatever we see in initial eval, we identify those weaknesses and that's where we're going to put a little more focus for the person. Yeah, I, and I I always think that uh, again that's the thing talking to experts in the field. It's never one general thing that you can always do. It always comes back to the person, which I think is very helpful. Um, before we move on to the next section, uh, I would like to ask you uh, to plug maybe your social media or a website where people can see more information. Because I know from following you on social media, you post a lot of great 
examples of athletes in the day to day, maybe that, you know, behind the curtains, just a simple, you know, uh, mobility routine that looks very ordinary, but you put some information and more context on that. So for people watching, um, I'd like you to give the chance to uh, plug your social media or more information about KP performance. Yeah, certainly. So um, Instagram, KP performance, uh, KP underscore performance, I believe is how it's set up. And, you know, that's where I tend to post most things uh, and then it just kicks, gets kicked over to Facebook. Uh, as far as the website, kpperformanceboulder.com. Um, and now, you know, going into this, I hadn't done a whole lot of work on the website, but given the nature of what's going on now and the fact that we're all relying a little bit more on social media um, to kind of find information and stay connected, uh, the goal is to go ahead and put a lot more work into providing some more content on the website so that we can give people, you know, again, some of these general things. Here's a core routine um, and it's going to cover everything. Doesn't mean it's the one for everybody, but just to start giving people some options. Um, and yeah, I do try to provide a little bit of a highlight as to, you know, what we're doing um, when we go through taper windows, the different things we're doing coming out of that. Uh, and then I usually do my best to explain why we're doing what we're doing mm -hmm. so that somebody doesn't just see a series of exercises and think, oh, well, that's just something I should do. Uh, and it's race week. All of a sudden they're doing something silly that's going to hurt their race. Right. So there's always going to be some kind of an explanation in there um, just to provide some information and background on why we're doing what we do. Right. I think so. The, yeah, pretty uh, much uh, KP Performance Boulder is the website and KP Performance on Instagram as well as on Facebook. Yeah, I think the why is always that most important thing that you deliver instead of just the what or even the how, the why and the reasoning behind it is the thing that I always find uh, the most helpful uh, seeing the post. Um, topic number two we have uh, pertains to this unique situation that we've uh, you know, found ourselves in over the past couple of weeks. And uh, we, we don't necessarily know when this unique situation is going to necessarily uh, end of being relegated more towards uh, your home. So this next topic focuses on how can runners build strength at home? Let's say that uh, you're in my situation and I have a apartment gym that's 50 feet away from me but it's closed because we're not allowed to, to go in the gym where multiple people can interact. So now I am relegated to my home. I cannot go to the gym and have access to the things I normally had. Can runners build strength at home if they do not have access to a gym like they're normally used to? So this may be the part where people are not going to get the answer they want out of the question. Uh, so I'll say it this way. If you have never done any kind of strength training, yes, you can develop some strength at home, um, simply working with your body weight. Obviously, that's going to plateau. Now, if you've been pretty consistent in the gym um, and you're moving around some pretty good weight, you're just not going to be able to recreate that at home, you know, outside of having some kind of external load to add to the body. So what I do is tend to, you know, shift the focus instead of saying, how can we try to make something strength oriented happen at home when we don't have equipment? You know, the better question is, what can I do to become a better runner when we do come out of all of this? And that's going to be all of that supplemental stuff that nobody really likes to do. So from, you know, digging in on your core stuff to working on some of your pattern drills. So, you know, things like how your leg tracks and you could get into some running drills. So that's really where I'm trying to get everybody to shift their mental focus. Uh, if they do not have any equipment, we're going to keep consistency. So I'm a big fan of routine. I want them to do, you know, the same number of days in the week. We're just going to shift it and the focus is anything and everything for that athlete that's going to help them pop out on the other side better and not just spin their wheels trying to chase something that is really a challenging thing to do if you don't have some sort of equipment 
So I know that's kind of a bummer. It's hard to develop strength if you don't have something to pick up. Mm -hmm. um, but it doesn't mean there aren't things you can work on. And, you know, most people don't spend a lot of time, whether it's form drills or some of those other things. And I get it when you're in your, you know, regular life, we'll say uh, you've got your full time job, your training or your elite, your training. Then, you know, getting to those things just it goes way down the list of important things. Um, but now we obviously have a little bit more time. So just start looking at some of those things and mm -hmm. work on what you can work on and try not to stress over the things that you can. Yeah. Um, this next uh, follow up here piggybacks completely off of that. Uh, is there a big difference between building strength at home versus building strength at the gym? And again, going back to that sort of uh, initial definition that we had at the beginning um, of the show of strength isn't literally just being able to pick up, you know, uh, all your grocery bags with two hands and only making one trip from the car. Uh, strength is multifaceted and you can improve uh, your ability as a runner, like you just mentioned, while at home, but maybe touch on uh, what the differences are between building strength at home versus getting in the gym and being able to move that heavy weight around. Yeah, so to, to continue to progress, um, progressive overload is the concept. So we have to continue to apply more of a load and then have the body respond to that. And all that happens in about three week chunks. So if you kind of look at a very traditional, maybe run setup, you know, it's three weeks and then a step back. Um, that's the same kind of concept. And it's because the body's going to adapt in roughly three week windows. So if you don't have that external load, that strength element is not going to improve if you can't continue to add to that. But if you really double down on your hip stability, your hip mobility, the stronger you can make that supporting cast, when you come back to it and you start lifting again, it's going to make your lifting even better. So you're going to end up in a better place no matter what if you stick with working on the things that you can work on. And again, I know that's kind of a bummer of an answer. You know, we'd look for maybe some techniques like you could do uh, isometric holds and, you know, fast tempo, slow tempo with your strength training at home. Um, but those aren't really going to be game changers for you. Now, if all of a sudden you develop the ability to spread your toes and mobility in your midfoot and stuff that you just never would work on when you don't have the time, that's going to serve you a lot better down the road. Yeah, super interesting. Um, you you mentioned some kind of specific exercises there. We've had uh, Coach Bobby McGee or Dr. Ginger Gutschel on, uh, and they've given us a couple examples of some exercises that they prefer to recommend to people. If you had to pick one or two exercises to recommend to somebody that might be watching this and wants something accomplishable, maintainable, and practical, what would be one or two uh, sort of basic building blocks that you might recommend? Uh, you know, we're always going to kind of come back to the glute concept, um, and it probably seems like a real cop-out go-to answer for everybody in my industry. Uh, you know, the joke is you could go in and it's like, oh, my toe hurts. Well, your glute's not working. Uh, and technically, that could be part of the problem there. So I'm always going to have a lot of emphasis there. Um, but I think probably mobilizing your hips, so getting your hip flexors loose, the ability to externally rotate the hip, and then getting your glutes working, so your bridge, your lateral band steps, things like that. Um, that's really where I would tend to be, uh, have people focus because we're sitting on our glutes all day. Obviously, now we're at home more often, so we're sitting on them more um, and we're just kind of decreasing signals into that area. So I would just say, you know, take your choice of things, but, you know, something like a couch stretch for your hip flexor, uh, something like a pigeon stretch for rotation and then going into a bridge to get your glutes on and then maybe going through some band work with lateral steps uh, just to make sure they keep working. And that's something easy enough that uh, it's not necessarily going to leave somebody super sore and they won't be able to run, Correct. but it's enough that they can start to incorporate and maybe have that 
one exercise that they check off that they can start incorporating in. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I'd be happy too to go ahead and put a couple of things together and we can get it posted through Stride. Um, yeah. You guys can come back and check it out later. Yeah, absolutely. Um, whenever we get a link to that, if somebody's watching uh, a little bit down the road, we'll put it in the uh, description or li link link down in the video. Uh, last question in this section is, what are common mistakes when runners tried to build strength and what should they be mindful of? I feel like this is a um, you know, a huge thing now, as we talked about earlier, the onset and the increase of people being aware that they need to increase or introduce strength training, the need for people to be mindful of what not to do is just as important as the recommendations and facilitating a program for people. So what should people be mindful of and what should they maybe look out for what not to do as they introduce some strength training? Yes, yeah, so, um, two things I would look at, you know, one is pretty broad based and it's just looking at time windows. So where you are relative to your competitive season, um, if people decide in the middle of their season um, or I've even seen this, you know, five or six weeks out from their main marathon. Oh, I need to do some strength. And all of a sudden they jump into things that may be very, very solid concepts, but it's a horrible window because by the time they realize what they've done is actually taking too much out of them, you don't have that ability to recover and then be ready for your race. So I think the timing of what you're doing and when you're doing it is probably going to be the biggest thing there. Um, and then, you know, the other mistake is just people tend to go, okay, I need to get better strength. Therefore, I know that squatting is going to be good. I know that deadlifting is going to be good. And on average, what we run into is your ability to produce force or power is going to override your ability to stabilize. Mm -hmm. um, simply meaning, if you don't have a regular core routine and you're not solid in that department, you're going to be able to squat more weight with your legs than maybe your low back can stabilize. So I'm always a big fan of taking somebody if they haven't been doing any of this stuff. Mm -hmm. And your first three to four weeks, we're going to hammer the core, work on your patterns, and then start to incorporate more of the loading component and then just gradually build that. So I think people dive in because, oh, I need to go heavy, you know, four to six is what everybody tells me. Um, while that's a true statement, that may be a horrible thing if you haven't been doing anything. Um, and it could be a quick route to getting your back hurt. So right. making sure that you progress properly. So I'd say that's probably the biggest thing uh, as far as runners deciding I need to do strength and then how they start to incorporate it. Right. And that's uh, the same sort of thing as if somebody shows up to a group run, um, you know, maybe a couple of months ago and their friend says, yeah, I've been doing these hill sprints once a week and they've been magnificent. I, you know, I do 15 times 20 second hills with recovery back down and somebody immediately tries to go do it the next day, but they haven't built up from exactly. five hill sprints, eight, 10, 12, 15. So the same sort of concept people should be aware of uh, for running it. It translates to adding the strength training. Um, we have yeah, a couple I always more. tell people when you are watching yeah. social media and you're seeing some of your favorite athletes doing really cool stuff, yeah. remember there was an entire window and process that took them to that point. So right. just because you see something that makes sense and it's a good idea doesn't mean you start it that way that day. So progressions and regressions, I believe, are pretty important. Right. Know when you need to back off and then know when you can start to accelerate it. The uh, the other danger, I, I, I like this term for social media, is the things you see most are people's highlight reel, but you never see their blooper reel. So you never see yep. when they fail for, for holding a core exercise or something like that. So um, definitely something to be mindful of. Uh, we have a couple more listener questions that uh, trickled in. Uh, first one here is, could adding too much strength be detrimental in gaining extra mass when this may not be what is desired? So this kind of touches on what we talked about earlier, but it's a maybe a slightly different thing of 
adding too much strength? Is it possible for a completely endurance-focused athlete to bulk up too much where it hurts their performance? So if you look at kind of a, we'll say a traditional endurance athlete, maybe somebody that was a runner, you know, starting in junior high, high school, and then coming up, um, odds are their body type is not the bodybuilder. So they're not going to just put on massive, massive amounts of muscle. So I think in general, the concern of putting on too much mass isn't, you know, overly well-founded with endurance athletes, simply because, you know, I could point to a whole host of guys that lift and their whole goal is to get bigger. And they're not just growing exponentially because they lift heavier weights. Um, and that's the only thing they're doing. So if you have your endurance in there, it's probably going to keep it pretty well managed. That being said, um, something that I'm trying to get myself more into with athletes is looking at kind of a, a bigger way of viewing composition. So taking circumference measurements, you know, the neck, the chest, the shoulders, all the way down the body, then looking at their body weight and then maybe pulling skin fold measurements where we're not trying to go body fat percentage. I'm just looking at did I pull four millimeters or six millimeters. And then if I see an endurance athlete where they're, you know, a runner and their chest and their shoulder measurements are getting bigger, I know that, you know, that's not a road that we need to go down. So that's another way of trying to get that system put into place right now um, where we can just, you know, periodically six, eight weeks before big events, get an idea of where that athlete's composition is and also just see, are we inadvertently putting on some upper body mass? And then I can go ahead and make changes in their programming. So it is possible um, just in general, it's less likely when we're talking about somebody that comes from you know, endurance and, and we're not looking at that short, massive squat build. Um, we're looking at kind of a thinner athlete. I don't right. think you're going to be in too much trouble. Do you um, typically use the skinfold measurement or caliper measurement versus something like a uh, DEXA scan? I know has gotten a lot more popular uh, recently, but the whole concept of DEXA sitting in a pod and having all those compositions taken uh, is a little bit more cumbersome and less practical for most people versus uh, skinfold measurements. Yeah, and it you know it depends on the goal. If your goal is to figure out an exact body fat percentage, um, then you're going to look at hydrostatic. You're probably going to look at the DEXA scan um, versus say skinfold calipers or electrical impedance. So for me, I'm less concerned with trying to say, okay, athlete, you're at you know 11% or 9%. I'm more concerned with if I'm going to pull nine different measurements off of their body, did it change? You know, did I pull eight millimeters last time and we're at four millimeters now? I know that athlete is getting leaner. Um, you know, where the flip side is true. You know, if I see an athlete that's losing weight, but at the same time, their skinfold measurements are going up, that's an indication to me that we're now stripping off muscle. So I don't use it to try and say we're at X body fat. Um, for me, I'm triangulating between their circumference measurements, their body fat skinfold measurement, and then um, also looking at the, uh, the body weight. So just looking at those three pieces of information versus any one by itself. You want body fat? Yeah, you're going to need to do something like probably hydrostatic or the DEXA scan. Awesome. Yeah. Super, super interesting. That was just uh, my own personal question because I was, I was curious about that. Um, Daniel Greer asks, guessing most people don't have much swimming going on, maybe replace that with some strength stuff. So um, this is also a multifaceted question. If you're usually swimming to practice uh, technique or endurance, now you don't have that type of stress. Is it an appropriate time to sub out when you would normally have your swim sessions for adding in these type of specific strength se uh, sessions into your training program. Yeah, and actually I put a post up kind of referencing this a little bit. Um, it was more of a public service announcement kind of post where, you know, my concern is, um, let's say at the elite level, if somebody's, you know, seven plus hours a week in the pool, 
what we don't want to do is get out of the water and then grab your bands and try to recreate seven hours of that training and assume that somehow that's going to cause us to, to keep our swim fitness and then get back in the pool and be where we are. So we just need to accept the fact that right now if you're a triathlete, if you're a swimmer, you don't have access to water. So your swimming is going to suffer. And those first few weeks when you get back into swim training, they're not going to be fun at all. Um, but that doesn't mean there aren't things you can do to help work on that. So I'm really a big proponent of make sure your thoracic mobility is in check, you know, a good extension and rotation. Make sure your shoulder mobility is there. Um, stability around the shoulders, so between the shoulder blades. So I'm going to put a lot of focus into the athletes working on strengthening those areas, mobilizing those areas. And then we will throw in, you know, three or four times a week um, dry land concepts where we are taking the band, you know, and going through more of that swim motion. But my concern is somebody all of a sudden trying to recreate the same number of reps uh, because that's a pretty quick way to get a shoulder injury. So don't try to make it a one for one. Absolutely, there are things you can do that are going to help in the long run. But just think overall development versus trying to sub out one type of stress for another. And uh, trying to do a flip turn out of the water gets a little bit messy and it's uh, a yep. little bit impractical <laughs> too. Um, Cynthia I'd like asked, to see those videos. Yes, exactly, exactly. Tag KP performance uh, with your, no, except don't, yeah. don't do that. Don't do that. Uh, Cynthia asks, hi, Evan and Kevin. Can you touch on what the difference is from taking extended versus shorter rest between sets when lifting light or heavier weights? So um, the thing that uh, I'm very familiar with talking to other distance runners, uh, specifically like I talked just a little bit ago about adding hill sprints is a normal endurance distance runner gets very impatient when they all of a sudden have to take longer rests because that is not what you're used to in running. It's just, I'm going to run for an hour straight, or I'm going to run for three hours straight or take very little rest between my reps. But strength training is a very different stimulus. Can you talk a little bit more about the differences that you might have to consider when you're talking about recovery in between efforts for strength training? Yeah. So, you know, similar to, let's say a track workout where, you know, in one case, the focus is the time of the interval and another case, the focus is going to be the recovery interval. So it may be a fixed recovery interval. And then there's some variability with the actual work interval, or we may want somebody to run the work interval at a specific number. We give them as much rest as we need to, to accomplish that. Um, same thing in the gym. So if my goal was the pure strength side of the equation, I'm going to give that athlete, you know, probably a couple of minutes in between sets to make sure they can produce their best effort. Uh, if we look at people like powerlifting, powerlifting, Olympic lifters, I mean, it's things like doing two reps and then taking six minutes of recovery before they go back to do that next set. I know that's on the extreme end. For an endurance athlete, I don't think there's ever a need to go through that process. So if you have a shorter recovery, it is going to have some of a limiting effect on the output that goes into the next set of whatever the exercise is. So if your goal is strength, give yourself, you know, probably closer to a minute with that. Um, and if the you know goal is a little bit of strength, but just keeping things moving, you know, I think you can go down as low as about 30 seconds of recovery. So 30 to 60 is about the number I would look at. Awesome. But not, uh, you know, not walking for 10 seconds and then immediately trying to do another heavy 10 squats or something like that. Correct. Awesome. Um, I, one You'll find that you're, there's a big decrease. You know, that second set would be significantly less than the first and then the right. third would follow suit. So, um, and that may be an easy way to gauge it too. You know, if you were doing, let's say, pull-ups and you mm -hmm. could do 10 and then you waited 20 seconds and you could do three, mm -hmm. odds are you probably need to give yourself a little more recovery. So um, that right. might be a field technique you can use to help judge what you need your recovery to be. 
Awesome. Yeah, that's that's a great pointer. Uh, one last question uh, for this segment, and then we'll move on to the uh, third block of questions that we have. Uh, this comes from Jim. He says, what is the time frame for these blocks of base training than to other elements? So you've referred to, um, you know, the, the fitness kind of adaptations are made in about these three-week blocks when you're talking about normal training. But what is the time frame for these blocks of base training and then progressing to other elements? Yeah, you're looking at, you know, anywhere from, I'd say, ballpark six weeks to 12 weeks. And it's going to be a little bit different with endurance athletes. Um, if you have sports where the whole goal is to peak for one single event, it's a little bit different because you can map out your whole 12 months based on that. Um, when you look at somebody like a triathlete, typically by, you know, March, April, everybody's racing. And then that could extend into, you know, world championships in October, even going into November, December. So you're not going to be able to peak, say, four or five, six times in a season. So you're going to look at setting yourself up for that particular event. Now, I like to go through as soon as they come off their offseason, take a normal break and then come back to it. And you've got about six weeks of what they call anatomical adaptation. And that's just your basic strength development. And that's getting your connective tissue working, developing a little bit of base strength. Then after that, you go into, you know, a six to 12 week window of your 10 to 12 reps and then go into, you know, maybe a six to 12 week window where you're dropping those reps down. Um, so a lot of this is going to be based on the individual again. But if we think we're going to adapt in about a three week window. You know, maybe getting a couple of rounds of that when you're going through one specific type of stress would be a pretty good idea. And it doesn't mean you quit all the other things. It just means that's where the emphasis of your training is. And that might be something uh, for people to consider, too, of if you start to incorporate a round of strength training, don't give up after the first 10 to 15 days because you have to give yourself time to adapt to that. And really to see that kind of progress like you're talking about is ideally you'd give yourself at least six weeks of time. So you have that first three weeks and then you add or you change on top of that first three weeks to the next three weeks, and then you can start to see progress over there. So it's not just that, uh, you know, quick hit and you're all of a sudden going to gain 20 pounds of muscle and be super efficient. You have to give yourself uh, kind of time to incorporate that with these blocks that you're referring to. Absolutely. And, you know, the, the very initial improvement somebody's going to see, particularly if they've not done any strength training in that first, you know, 14 day window you're talking about, it's their neurological adaptations mm -hmm. where you're simply turning on more motor units. So, you know, we could say, oh, you're stronger because you're able to lift more weight. But in that window, we didn't increase the cross-sectional size of the fibers or any of that kind of stuff. So, yeah, those initial adaptations are neurological, but then it's three to four weeks before you get that true change in the muscle tissue um, or cardiovascular, whatever system you're stressing. So, mm -hmm. yeah, having a couple of rounds of that where you layer one on top of the other and then the consistency over time is really where the value is going to come in. Awesome. Uh, so we're going to move on to the third set of questions that we have that we prepared. If anybody else has any other questions, please drop them in the uh, the chat here so we can get those before we wrap up here today. Uh, topic number three is how to complement a strength routine. If you're doing you know, heavy lifting, plyometrics, mobility, what really matters, and I've heard this phrase, is the other 23 hours out of the day, right? It's what can you do to actually uh, you know, help your body recover. So in order for a strength routine to be successful, what does an athlete need to do? And this is a big open-ended question, but for a successful straining or strength training program, what would be something that a successful athlete would do on top of that just strength training? 
Yeah, you know, the good news is this answer kind of covers it for whether you're talking about the strength side of the equation or your run or swim bike run training. So uh, recovery, it, I don't know if it's a hot topic today. There are several books that are out right now, and I've been going through a bunch of them. Um, and it's anywhere from, you know, we're trying to find evidence-based things to do to help the body recover so that we can then perform better. Um, and as we go through it, we tend to get really focused on some of it's probably social media, some of it's marketing, but we're going to see a product that's put out there, you know, and it'll say we've got a clinical trial that shows blah, blah, blah. And so we tend to dive into all of those, whether it's a supplement, whether it's a training technique. And what we end up skipping over are the basics. So sleep and nutrition, those are your two primary ways you're going to help supplement all of this other stuff that you're doing. So sleep is a number one, um, and that's kind of been my going into 2020, what I'm trying to beat everybody over the head with is, you know, are you getting enough sleep? Um, last week, I sent a sleep questionnaire out to all the athletes that I work with so that they could kind of go through and see where they are um, and see where they can maybe make improvements. You know, are you getting eight to 10 hours of sleep as a competitive athlete? If you're cutting it down to five or six and then you're taking a bunch of other supplements to help yourself recover, uh, you could save some money and just sneak in an extra hour or so of sleep. And then nutrition is going to be so all kinds of products out there. And I'm not against products, but if you don't have your basics nailed down, just your basic intake, quality foods, that sort of thing, then all of the supplements are not going to be the game changer. And one of the ways I'm reeling this to people is if you look at, say, product A that showed a 3% boost in performance, um, product B that also showed a 3%, product C also showed a 3%. If you do all of those, you're not going to end up with a 9% boost in your performance. So we kind of get into the how much of this is, you know, upstairs. Um, and again, it doesn't matter if you're performing better, you're performing better, but you don't get an aggregate performance boost if you take on all of these things that do have evidence that show they work. So pick a couple of things, but really focus on your sleep and your nutrition. Those are going to be the big things that help you recover. Awesome. Yeah, uh, you just covered a couple points of this. And the one other point that I wanted to ask is practically how much time would somebody have to dedicate during their week? How much extra time does somebody have to add in to start seeing some benefits or uh, to you know, kind of start triggering their body to see these adaptations for a strength training routine? So we're gonna say twice a week. Um, and if you had twice a week where you were covering everything in the body twice a week and you were keeping your mobility in there and all that kind of stuff, then that two time a week, uh, that's where I'll see, it, you know, definitely gonna have some changes there. Um, dropping it down to one, I don't really see a whole lot of benefit there. Um, and then obviously, if you can get to three or more, you may see a little bit more. But remember, that's the strength component. So if we're talking about deadlifting, squatting, lunging, all those sorts of things, um, that's going to be a two to three time a week deal, but then keeping core and the other stuff in there as well. Yeah, super interesting. And what might be a general uh, sort of time allotment if somebody is adding two to three times per week could they get everything done in 15 minutes do they need to do 75 minutes is it 45 minutes what's a maybe very general rule of thumb with a plus or minus on, on the end yeah i try to keep everybody you know ballpark 45 minutes um so 45 to 60 minutes i think if you're spending over 60 minutes mm -hmm. you're probably better suited to divide some of that up into a couple of different days and if you're doing only 15 or 20 minutes, then there's just no way you can cover the full range of things that you need to cover. Mm. So if I had 20 minutes and I went in and did a bunch of leg strength, um, great, my legs are stronger. But if my mobility is still poor and my stability is still poor, mm -hmm. I'm going to end up with a problem down the road. So right. a lot of times I'll have people give me whatever their parameters are. So if somebody tells me 20 minutes, 
I'm going to give them the most important things for them to do in that 20 minutes. Mm -hmm. So the answer for your question is, I think 45 to 60 minutes, um, but then having some days where it is 15 to 20 and all you're doing is working on something like mobility. Right. Awesome. Uh, let's see a couple more listener questions before we wrap up here. Uh, mm -hmm. Leonardo says, when you mean two to three sets, is it the same weight for all sets? Uh, and that's the first part of the question. The second part is also according to the type of training, if you're 5k or marathon from that power to endurance side, do you at the same time, so the, the question is, or marathon power endurance, same time during eccentric and concentric phase. So uh, the part that I kind of understand a little bit more is when you say two to three sets, use the same weight for all sets, and then maybe talking about eccentric versus concentric phases for power or endurance athletes. Yes, yeah, so I mean, the, the two to three sets, same weight, it can be the same weight, or you can go through kind of that pyramid concept mm -hmm. where set one is at a certain weight for X reps, set two you add. You know, in my opinion, let's say somebody's doing three sets, and they're doing three sets of 10. And that third set of 10, and they're adding weight each time, so that third set of 10 is when they really feel like they stress themselves. You know, my question is, what did set one and two do if you were using the same weight? So if you're going to be increasing weight, then you're probably going to be decreasing reps. If you're increasing weight and doing the same number of reps, you've probably lost some of it um, with those first couple of sets. So that's probably the biggest thing I would say. Uh, and I think if I'm understanding this right with the concentric, eccentric, you know, maybe some of the tempo concepts, like maybe having a five second eccentric and then going through a very quick concentric phase. Um, and those are just some of the tricks that you try to throw in. But, you know, again, go back to your basics. So if you have not consistently over a year or longer worked on your basic fundamental movements and your basic strength, then you don't need to really toy around with a lot of these other real complex concepts. Totally. Um, it, let's see. Nikhil asks, should I run in a small area in my home or stationary bike or spot jogger skipping? I'm a runner with uh, about 50 kilometers or 30 miles a week average. So this is maybe for practicality of a current situation. Should they run in a small area around their home or just use a stationary bike, run in place, add some skipping or jump roping? What would be uh, your kind of just uh, best answer for that question? Uh, you know, if you're, you can challenge the cardiovascular system, but you know, my concern would be if you're running in a really small space, you know, take a track athlete, you know, where we do get concerned about asymmetries, depending on how much time they're spending on the track, running around in a circle. So that would be my first concern, trying to, you know, recreate. Uh, I'm going to do a 10 mile run, but I'm going to do it in a 10 by 10 room. You know, I think you may be causing more problems than actually doing yourself good. So if you're after the cardiovascular system, then you're probably going to want to play with more of those concepts where you have kind of that hit concept where you're going really high intensity for a short window and then some recovery, repeated rounds of that, um, if you're limited on space and things like that. Uh, but it sounds like that might be a question more for your specific endurance coach versus the strength side of the equation. Right. Uh, William asks, how do you feel about the Pilates reformer? And I'm not familiar with this. I'm familiar with the concept of Pilates, but uh, I'm not familiar with the Pilates reformer. So if you have any uh, thoughts on that matter. Yes, yeah, so I assume you're talking about kind of like the, the Cadillac the machine and it has springs on it. And that's where mm -hmm. you're providing a lot of your resistance. Um, mm -hmm. And then there's a lot of great body control in that. So, you know, I definitely come from the school of thought where there aren't many things that I ever look at and go, oh, no, we just shouldn't do that. Um, coming from a strength background, you know, I do believe we need to load the tissue. Mm -hmm. So we're going to need something maybe that moves you beyond things like that. But at the same time, if somebody doesn't have any experience with it, and I say, okay, one option is here's a strength routine where you're going to go lift weights. 
or another option is you're gonna go and use the Pilates reformer um, and they give me 10 minutes of strength and they hate it and then they walk out of the facility, but they go ahead and do 45 minutes on the reformer, by all means, let's get you on the reformer. So right. um, I think all methods of exercise are very valid and they all have mm-hmm. their purpose. But if you're going to work on improving strength, then you need to create more of a progressive overload so that over time you actually have something that you're adapting to. Awesome. Um, but I pull from all these things. I pull yoga concepts in, Pilates concepts in. Um, you know, I think you just have to take information and figure out how to apply it to that specific individual based mm-hmm. on where they are. But yeah, I love all of that stuff. Awesome. Uh, general question here, creating a weekly running program, would you recommend having functional strength done on the easy running days? So let's say I run a morning and I do gym work in the evening or add them during the allocated rest days. So would you have an athlete, uh, would you prefer they do it on a day where they're already doing some sort of aerobic intensity or would you leave it all the way for when they're completely recovered and doing the activity completely fresh? Yeah, so the catchphrase we use with this is hard days hard, easy days easy. So I always program where, you know, typically you're going to have your two quality run days out of the week. Uh, A lot of people are on, say, a Tuesday, Friday setup. So Tuesday and Friday, that's where I apply the strength. Um, And even if they have doubles, like a lot of times we'll see, do their hard session in the morning, then they'll come in, you know, around the afternoon and we do strength and then they have their second run later in the day. Um, And the reason is we want recovery to be recovery. So I wouldn't want you to take, say, a Tuesday and you go bang out a hard track session and then turn around Wednesday and go stress your legs with strength, you know, and Thursday, a little bit of recovery. And then Friday, you're back to, you know, hitting another hard run session. So it's better to match up the hard stress on the same day so that you end up with recovery, truly being recovered. Awesome. Uh, Next question here is, are there specific exercises to help with running downhills? So the eccentric phase of a strength move, that's probably, so it's not so much the exercise itself as focusing on that eccentric phase. So if I'm squatting, maybe I'm going to take the weight and I'm going to have about a 10 second lowering and then come back up with maybe one second because all of that downhill running, it is the eccentric load. And that's why it's hard to run uphill. It's not as hard to run downhill, but you will be way more sore when you run downhill versus running uphill. So you have that impact and then basically what your quad's doing is preventing you from falling on your face when you land. So it's not letting your knee bend. Well, that quick bend and that contraction of the muscle getting longer, that's where a lot of those small tears occur. So focusing on the eccentric phase of your strength movements can help carry over with some of the downhill running. Um, But obviously in a smart way, putting some downhill running into your programming, um, you know, not maybe as a general concept, But if you know you have a race coming up where there's going to be some downhill running, then, yeah, you probably want to go ahead and try to tap into that system as well. Awesome. Uh, Last three quick questions we have here from the listeners. Cynthia says, what's your opinion on using creatine for endurance athletes? I am a believer. um, And that's some of what I was just going through in one of the books that I was reading, Um, you know, using creatine. And again, it's just taking the regular dosage each day, not going through some loading concept or any of those other things. Um, just to, it's going to help facilitate with your strength workouts. And then all of that in the long run is what's going to help your running. So don't think of something like creatine as, oh, I'm going to take a big spoonful and then go out and run and I'm going to run better. You know, you need to think about this as something that over the long haul, it's going to help the stuff that you're doing in the gym or your hill work or whatever you're doing. And in the end, you're going to end up better with it. But it's not a, you know, a short term performance enhancing kind of supplement. And creatine is involved with creatine phosphate, which is what you specialize in in that 
extremely short, high intensity things like hill sprints or like hard hard lifting exercises. Correct. Awesome. Uh, and then two more questions. Justin says, are there specific power to weight ratios runners should aim to achieve with certain lifts to optimize running performance? So do you have any baselines where if a runner weighs 70 kilograms, they should be able to lift X amount times their body weight for a strength movement? Uh, I don't think that information is out there right now. And I'm not saying I've spent days scouring the internet to find that. Um, I think that strength as a concept for endurance athletes is still relatively new enough that we don't have a lot of historical data. And I don't think anybody really sat down and looked at that. Um, you know, there's some of those things for football, but the one thing we do know is it's not a direct correlation necessarily. So we can kind of look at things and go, okay, most of the people who are at this level are lifting X number of pounds relative to their body weight, but it also doesn't mean you're going to take somebody who can achieve that level and then go have the same degree of success when they actually go into a race environment. So uh, right now, I don't think that information is out there. I think it could be useful down the road, um, but more in general ranges versus trying to get to something specific. Awesome. Uh, and then last question here from Patrick. He says, with deadlifts, we are training the glutes, having both fast and slow twitch fibers. How is this best executed? Little reps with high load combined with high reps with little load or just somewhere in the middle, say 10 to 15 reps with intermediate weight? Yes. So all of those things should be really put in. Um, there's not a one size fits all. So you need to change the stress. So there are going to be windows where I have athletes deadlifting for 10 reps, and then they're going to be windows where we're deadlifting for more like four to six reps. Um, so the rep scheme is just based on changing things up to allow you to continue to develop. Uh, one thing I do want to throw in with the deadlift, and this is just kind of, I'm always a, a safety person. So I look at things and go, how do we get the most out of an exercise and how do we limit or hopefully minimize the opportunity to get hurt? So a lot of what I do is I don't have athletes pull deadlifts from the floor. So when you think about a traditional deadlift and the bar is down there on the floor, I don't really pull from that range. I pull from kind of what's referred to as the hang position or at their knees. So I'm still going to put them in a squat rack where that bottom position is just below knee height. Or if I don't have a rack, I'm going to build up the height of the weight. But having people pull from range up, you're strengthening the muscles through the same angles you're going to use when you run but you're cutting out that range where things tend to go a little bit sideways and people can get in trouble. So don't assume that you just have to take something, you know, a stock deadlift and that's the way you have to do it. Um, you could do, they call them rack pulls, variety of other names for them, um, but keeping it in a safer range so that you get strength, but you're also minimizing risk. Awesome. Yeah, that's, that's great. And I think that's probably a consideration that, uh, you know, again, speaking from personal experience or the experience of an endurance athlete, they see a blanket term for one exercise. You say, okay, deadlift, I YouTube it really quick. And I see the, for the first thing I have to lift a really heavy weight off only the ground. I think this is a great consideration, at least to change the mindset about somebody that's coming from that endurance side and approaching, trying to add in the strength. Um, I have one more question before we wrap up here. And sure. you mentioned at the very top of the show, that one of the athletes you work with is Jake Riley, and he finished second at the U.S. Olympic Marathon Trials, had that huge kick uh, 600 meters to go, his hand an American flag, and he had to you know, kick home with uh, American flag out kicking a couple other athletes. Um, you mentioned that you added in a couple of strength you know, things to his program, a couple different exercises to um, incorporate to help with the uphills and downhills of the Atlanta Marathon course. Could you just talk a tiny bit before we wrap up about 
some approaches that she used with Jake for his strength training before he placed second at the U.S. Olympic marathon trials. Yeah, sure. And you know, everybody definitely keep in mind, don't just take this and then put it into play. Um, I'm giving you a little background on what Jake and I worked on going into that race. Um, not so much here's what everybody needs to go out and do. But, you know, with Jake, it was a little different situation because he had about a three-year window, couldn't train, couldn't put in the mileage. So when he came to Boulder and didn't have that opportunity to do a lot of run training, had to get surgery and all that, he did a fantastic job of focusing on the things that he could work on. So from the strength side, um, he was aggressive. We went after it because we knew we didn't have run training that we had to worry about, at least through certain windows of time. So part of it was, you know, two years ago, Jake making a commitment to really put forth that effort in the gym versus just kind of checking the boxes. Now, on the more specific side, um, I used to live in the southeast and been to Atlanta several times. So uh, and I've run the Atlanta Marathon a couple of times. So I was very familiar with the terrain that was going to be there. Uh, and that's always going to make it a much bigger challenge when you get down to that last 5K or whatever it is um, and you're carrying all that fatigue. So we did some definite, you know, very high weight stuff and in the low reps. But then we went through a little bit of a you know, transition phase going into the race where we strung together some combinations where it was a circuit using his legs, but at about a 40 to 60 percent um, load intensity. But it was a seven or eight minute long circuit. And then we would go through several rounds of that. So it was just taking some of that strength and then giving him the ability to produce that time and time again. Um, and that heavier strength training, you know, we can never say 100 percent. We know that this did that. But, you know. Definitely, we start looking at things like kick pulling in type two fibers. I think the more of a strength background you have in that, the more it's going to help you when you get there. Um, but you know, that was uh, that was Jake coming from here and his training with Coach Lee Troop. So I think strength had a little bit to do to be helpful. Um, but you know, that's going to come down to you know who Jake is as well as his coaching. Yeah, totally. Um, the last kind of question we have here is we you know we just talked about an athlete that qualified for the 2020 Olympics and the Olympics got push back to 2021. How do you foresee the future of the elite side of the sport, the recreational runner side of the sport, the competitive amateur? Where do you think uh, this kind of goes just based off the current situation? What are your general thoughts on uh, the near future or the, the semi uh, near future of, of running in general? Yeah, you know, I think the, the near future, um, because I mean, right now it's all uncertainty. Um, all you have to do is watch the news and something they're talking about on Monday night, it may not be the same case on Wednesday night. Um, and it's understandable. You know, this is something that we've never gone through. We've never seen this, so we don't really know. Um, obviously, the virtual side of the equation is really coming into play now. So I have some athletes that are, you know, the races they were signed up for, they're still going to go ahead and do them, but it's as a virtual race. I know Ironman right now is doing a whole series where they have pros racing against each other over the weekends. So you're going to see more of that going on. Um, but I think the ultimate game changer, uh, you know, watch the news, Fauci, it's once we can get a vaccine and then figure out how to get all this under control. So I'm an optimist, you know, I would like to think we're going to get to a point where we can get this under control and we can go back to, you know, quote unquote, normal um, or some version of that. But it's just going to come down to, you know, whether or not we can get a handle on controlling the spread of this because close proximity is always going to be an issue when something like this is going on. Um, and obviously that's what goes on in races. So you know, I think we're going to have a lot more going on on the virtual side of the equation, um, at least until we get a handle on this. And then hopefully, you know, we're not going to be too far off when we go into 2021, um, feeling like we should have felt going into this year. Totally. Uh, we actually had one last question that wraps 
everything up perfectly. Uh, Leonardo asks, do you offer any type of online service with KP Performance with video evaluation and online routine? Uh, so maybe answering this question and plugging KP Performance one more time for our listeners. I guess I can do that. Um, yeah, absolutely. So I'm a big fan of the screening process. Um, I think you need to have some kind of information before you just start throwing a collection of exercises at somebody. Um, and this is something I'm going to be putting out over the next week or so. I'm doing a little promotion on it. And so what I have is it's about 14 different movements. The person videos themselves doing all the movements. You upload that to my website. And then I go through with just like coach's eyes, what I use, just one of the uh, analytics software. And what I do is a narrated version. So I'm going to send it back to you where I'm describing everything I'm seeing, probably drawing some lines saying this looks good. This doesn't look as good. Um, and it's to go back to that why component we talked about earlier, where when I give an athlete a series of exercises, I want them to connect the exercise with the why. So, yeah, we're doing this stretch because, see, here you really didn't have the ability to move through that position. So that's always step one for me. We go through that uh, movement screening. And then from there, I have some people that are on team programs and some that are also in individual programs. So um, by all means, there's a contact form on my website. Feel free to go on there, send a message, and then we can connect and see how we can best help you out. But over the next week, I'm going to be talking about the screening component. And, you know, probably a good time to do that because we don't have a lot of other opportunities. So people can video, send it in. I'll do the eval, send it back, as well as a selection of things that I think will help correct whatever it is we're seeing in that movement screen. Awesome. Well, I have found this so helpful today. Uh, again, I, I love following uh, the content that you put out, but I know for everybody watching, everybody going to listen and watch later, it's been so, so helpful. Uh, we love having this kind of mix of topics that we can talk about. Um, do you have any other thoughts or anything else that you wanted to bring up today? Otherwise, we can uh, definitely wrap it up. No, not really. Um, you know, that take home is just focus on the things you can focus on. Um, so if you spend, you know, 90% of your time worrying about the things that you aren't able to do right now, you're going to lose a month or two months or whatever this time window is going to be. Um, if you turn around and, you know, one question I always have for athletes after they race is, you know, tell me the good stuff that went on. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the follow-up question is, tell me the stuff that didn't go quite as well. So we can frame that in this context, which is, you know, what do I do pretty well with everything? And what kinds of things do I need to work on? Mm -hmm. And let's put hyper-focus into what we need to work on. Because uh, for the vast majority, it's not, you know, a 300-pound deadlift that's going to be their main concern. You know, it's going to be ankle mobility or something like that. So put your focus uh, towards the things that you can work on. You will come out a better athlete when we get to the other side of this. Awesome. Well, Kevin, thank you so much again for coming on. We really, really appreciate it. I know I found it super useful. Um, we will be back with another episode later this week. And uh, everybody, if you want to learn more information, feel free to uh, click the link in the description or the show notes. Uh, for now, this was the next episode of Stride for the Love of Running webinar. Uh, Kevin, thanks so much. We'll see you later. All right. Keep up the good work. Appreciate you guys. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye. Thank you.